This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Australian Dance Theatre are a company based in Adelaide and celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. Uh, And as part of that anniversary, they're returning to Melbourne for the first time since 2013 with a work called Be Yourself. I'm joined on the line by the company's artistic director, Gary Stewart. Gary, good morning. Good morning. So this is a work that's been around for quite some years. I know that uh, in 2015, I think it was performed uh, up in Sydney, and it's a couple of years older than that as well. Um, the, an earlier review I read of it was from 2012. So it's clearly a work that's been a- around for a while. Why kind of restage it and retour it now? Uh, well, yeah, it's a work I made, made a number of years ago, and it was co produced by a number of European venues and uh, and we've taken it to Europe a couple of times and, and as you said we've taken it to Sydney and also Perth but um, this time we're doing an Australian tour and it's never been to Melbourne and uh, and the last time we were in Melbourne was um, about four years ago with a work called Proximity uh, so yeah it's it's the work is still very current for us because it's still in our repertoire and um, it's sort of still in demand so um, yeah and 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 certainly the the themes of the work are, are still very current and and the tone and texture of the work is, is very sort of current and contemporary so yeah and 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 also just just recently in this rehearsal period I've just developed um, a couple more of the scenes so um, you know I sort of like to keep the work alive by by continuing to evolve it and um, yeah, I, I think I find that a really satisfying process. So the the the, the um, project doesn't just become, you know, inert, but it actually is really dynamic and and makes sense for the performers that are doing it now. Now, one of the challenges for a work like this is that given that you've created it with an electronic score and also uh, video projection elements involved as well, is there the risk that those uh, musical elements, those electronic and uh, and video elements may start to feel dated after a time? Do you get to remake those in the same way that you might revisit and uh, and re-explore the choreography? No, I, I don't think the sound is dated at all. I mean, it's only a few years old. It's not, it's not like it's from the 80s. <laughs> you know, it's sort of the, the kind of risk of it being dated within this time frame isn't sort of really there. Uh, but, but yeah, the, 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 the score is, I mean, some of it is quite cartoonic. So it's almost like a, a folly score. And, um, because, uh, the, the, the work expresses, um, the idea that, you know, the self is the body. And so it's the sort of exploration of the biomechanics of the body and, 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 and how we express selfhood through the body. So, um, so this kind of, it starts off in this sort of almost, yeah, cartoonic place, uh, with all these, um, with the sound score that kind of equates really directly to their movements. Um, but then later on it sort of shifts and becomes more, uh, ambient and suggestive, uh, and other, other, and other scenes that are sort of a bit more driven by rhythm um but yeah it's quite an expansive score you know um sort of within the kind of sort of electronic palette uh made by brendan Wheaty, who i've been collaborating for uh over the last seven years uh but the set design was done by dillis capidio and renfro which is a, a new york based uh, architectural firm um, they're, they're actually an extraordinary architectural firm making massive projects all around the world uh, the Museum of Modern Art Chicago the, uh, the Broad Museum in Los Angeles which is quite new um, but uh, yeah but they are also artists, they, all of the founders of the firm were artists uh, um, before they became architects and so they've kept that sort of artistic connection and, and making art, pro- art projects so um, it's a very simple set but it's a very effective set, uh, as anyone that, that sees the work will, will, will understand. Now, I've seen a couple of works uh, that you've created on the dancers of ADT, Australian Dance Theatre, yeah. in the past. So... Uh, uh, very intensely physical, but for audiences who've who aren't familiar with the company's work, how would you describe your your choreographic style and aesthetic? Well, I think my my work is shifting uh, currently, uh, but but in in the past I've had a real preoccupation with the body as a kind of a. Uh, a, a, a 
force of assault in a way as a kind of a, a really powerful performing entity. So this sort of almost like a hyper presence of the body. And so the dancers have trained, they, well, they train in contemporary dance and ballet and yoga, but also in aspects of martial arts. And, and for this project, they trained quite a bit in break dance. But, you know, the idea isn't for them to come out on stage and do a sequence of break dance or a sequence of gymnastics. It just informs their general vocabulary. And we, and we I guess we, we sort of take quotations from these different kind of artist, um, movement disciplines and then create this kind of um, overall uh, seamless vocabulary. Uh, so, so the dancers of the company are really kind of armed with this extraordinary arsenal of, of, of movement techniques and they kind of really can, uh, it gives them the ability or facilitates their ability to, to uh, enact movement and create movement that's probably beyond what most dancers generally can do. Uh, so certainly in this work, the, 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 you know, that, that's absolutely evident. Uh, and as I was saying, you know, they were training fairly intensively in breaking and break dance and, and also gymnastics throughout this project. But it's not an exercise in gymnastics and break dance. It's more, you know, it just gives them more choices uh, and, and opportunities to move in sort of really different ways. As well as those physical elements that have uh, informed the work, I understand you've also then, as part of the development of Be Yourself, encouraged the dancers to take part in what the study of philosophy, to even uh, look at uh, cadavers uh, at um, the, the Flinders Medical Centre in Adelaide, to give them a greater awareness of not just the physical aspects of the body and what is left of the body after death, but to think about the metaphysical aspects of the body, how uh, our thoughts impact on our movement, how breath impacts on our emotion and so forth. Yeah, well, well, actually, the genesis of this project um, came out of meditation uh, sessions that we were having uh, with the company. We've been um, involved in mindfulness meditation and, and Buddhist meditation uh, probably for about the last eight or nine years, uh, and so so we do that on a sort of reasonably regular basis. Um, and uh, we we had a at the time we were doing these sessions once a week with a Buddhist monk. And, uh, and, and a lot of those, um, the sort of analytical aspects of those meditation sessions were about looking at what is the I and what is the self and, and deconstructing that and which is sort of the uh, central sort of um, task, I guess, of, of Buddhist meditation. And um, so this sort of idea, this question of, you know, what actually is the self, what actually is the I, when we kind of look at it sort of more forensically, it sort of falls apart in some ways. Um, it's not the sort of absolute sort of um, continuous sort of narrative that we seem to think it is, that sort of, it is a bit more sort of fluid and pliable than that and sort of multidimensional. So, um, so that's where, yeah, it was because of those sessions that, that I started thinking about this work. Um, and so the work starts off with the proposition, well, are we the body? And there's an actress on stage who's um, sort of reciting the most extraordinary um, physiological jargon to describe what the dancers are doing. And it's sort of this amazing kind of... Um, incredibly dense language compared to the relative simplicity of the the actions of the dancers that's that's really extraordinary it sort of speaks to um you know the the, the phenomenal complexity of the human body uh so the work does start off with this you know proposition are we the body and then then later on moves into um sort of more a more psychological and emotional sort of place um so yeah, we, we we went out to Flinders Medical Centre because I was um, also kind of having a, conversations with uh, a professor of physiology, uh, Professor Ian Gibbons, um, who was the head of the physiology department at Flinders um, Medical Centre at the time, and uh, so we spent a day with cadavers in um, in the laboratory. They're actually preserved cadavers, um, so they're not sort of fresh uh, corpses. They're preserved cadavers that have been donated to science and um, and the medical students um, also work with them uh, sort of and they sort of last several years so we yeah it was sort of looking at sort of pulling out organs and sort of looking at the sort of internal spaces of the body and um, yeah and that that was kind of really interesting and really valuable 
uh, and and yes, we were also sort of looking at different. Um, uh, well, I guess uh, the, the physiology, sort of reading uh, and, and talking about the physiology of the body. We had our physiotherapist come in and help write some of the text, uh, as well as it, Professor Ian Gibbons, um, and, and also looking at different philosophical texts um, about sort of the notion of the self as well. We're talking with Gary Stewart, the Artistic Director of Australian Dance Theatre, whose work Be Yourself is coming to Melbourne uh, next week, uh, running from Wednesday the 2nd till Saturday the 5th of August at the Sumner in the South Bank Theatre at 140 South Bank Boulevard in South Bank. And then after Be Yourself performs in Melbourne, uh, it goes off on a national tour uh, dubbed Be Yourself Redux. I understand you're kind of reducing, what, the company slightly in terms of the number of dancers or the the duration of the work in order to make it more no, tourable? We're, we're, we're actually, it's not, it's not the duration, um, it's not the number of dancers, it's actually the set. Um, okay. The set is sort of fairly substantial and in order to, you know, create greater flexibility with the work and uh, so it can uh, tour to a number of really diverse venues and smaller venues, um, we've eliminated the set in order to, to do that. So we've kind of worked very hard to create um, uh, kind of a really seamless work that's still really powerful and still says a lot um, through, yeah, but, but without the set design. But, you know, at the cornerstone of the work is, is the performance is the performance of the dancers. Um, yeah. So Melbourne itself gets to see Melbourne gets to see the full version and then the uh, the, yeah. the, the uh, honed-down version goes on tour, including uh, a tour, uh, starting up in Townsville, which uh, I'm pretty sure yeah. uh, one of your ex-dancers, uh, mm. Kyle Page, is now working up in Townsville. So a chance to catch up with him and uh, the crew at Dance North. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Both, both Kyle and, and also Amber um, are up there and... Uh, they were ex-dancers of ours, and now they're running uh, Dance North and doing a, an incredible job, you know, just really absolutely extraordinary work, um, and have really reinvigorated that company in a really great way. So, yeah, that'll be exciting to be up there and kind of uh, have a bit of a, a reunion. <laughs> this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, we're going to talk visual art now. I'm joined in the studio by Fiona Sweet, who's the Festival and Creative Director of the Ballarat International Photo Biennale. Fiona, lovely to have you in. Thank you very much for having me, Richard. Why have a Biennale celebrating photographic art and why have it in Ballarat? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the Biennale's been around since 2005, originally in Dalesford and then in Ballarat. Uh, so I did inherit the Biennale and the town Ballarat. But now that I've been there for 14 months now, I understand why it's so important both for the town and for the audiences. The town is small, it's walkable, there's beautiful buildings where we can house the exhibitions and it's only an hour and 15 minutes from Melbourne. So it's a wonderful satellite uh, town for audiences to come up and see a very specialised international collection of photography artists. Now, this is your first program uh, it is. as the, uh, the the creative director of the festival. Did you want to shake things up and do something radical with it when you took the reins or was your brief more a softly, softly kind of let's see what direction we can gently guide it in approach? I was very lucky... Um, the board gave me an open uh, open book and I was allowed to do pretty much what I liked. When I was applying for the job, I had to put across a, a table of ideas of what I was going to do. I'd been to the last two biennales and although I enjoyed them very much, I knew that I wanted to take the idea of photography and bring it more into contemporary practice and look at more about how photography and photo media artists were working around the world. So, yes, I was given an open brief to answer the question and I've, as you can see with the program, I've really changed the, the, the type of works that we're presenting. Changed it how? Uh, well, firstly, I've introduced a significant exhibition into the Art Gallery of Ballarat, which is with David LaChapelle, uh, a very significant American photographer who's been uh, practising since 1980s when he started with Interview Magazine and Andy Warhol. So I've introduced quite a significant photographer who... I believe, and the figures are showing us, is drawing a large crowd from Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane 
to our town. And then what I've also done, which is a very, very different, is I've uh, commissioned curators to create specific bespoke exhibitions in our exhibition spaces. So we've got 12, uh, 12 core exhibitions curated and then a quite a large public outdoor program as well. Now, for example, some of the outdoor works, there's going to be projections of photos from the the 150 years of the Ballarat Courier, for example, projected outside on the streets of the city. So literally bringing the, the history of the city to life through the art of projection, which every winter festival now seems to, to, to want to have uh, uh, that kind of projected light art aspect. But the flip side of that is then also... Uh, kind of acknowledging not just 150 years of the local newspaper, for example, but acknowledging some 75,000 years of uh, the Indigenous history of Australia through part of the core program, uh, a series of works, uh, 17 Indigenous photographers in total, in uh, a work called Tell. Tell us more about that. That's a program that I'm very excited about. It's curated by Jessica Clark, who's a Palawa woman herself, and she has selected 17 Indigenous photographers and photo media artists to discuss uh, the theme of of identity. Um, and I suppose it's an exhibition of new commissions and recent works um, that deploy photographic technologies in varying ways uh, to talk about their self and actually, as the title says, tell their own story. So that's a really interesting exhibition and it's housed in the Mining Exchange, which is a very classic uh, gold mining architectural building. So it's quite a nice clash of ideas there as well. Now, a couple of years ago on this particular program, I had one of the representatives of the group known as Disturb on the show talking about their large-scale poster art, which they paste up around Melbourne and the the workshops they were doing as well. Disturb are photojournalists and presenting photojournalism in a very accessible way. We're used to seeing photojournalism uh, as reportage in magazines or newspapers, for example. And the impact of of photojournalism, of a great photo... We know the impact that can have historically and it's one of the reasons why governments and uh, and armies around the world now embed journalists with them rather than allowing them to work independently because they want to control the narrative and the medium. Why did you want to have Disturb involved in the festival? I first saw Disturb uh, in Malaysia, I think, last year or the year before and met some of the team that were there for the photographic exhibition there called Obscura and we had lots of chats and once I um, Googled and found out more about what they did and their mission, I was incredibly excited that it was a a global group of photojournalists who understood that the, the changes, as you've already discussed, from being in a publication to creating your own story uh, is so prevalent now worldwide. So I wanted to bring a team of of hashtag Disturb to Ballarat. And what's really interesting about their program is, firstly, they tell stories in your town. So in the city of Ballarat, they're telling stories that are not of Ballarat. Secondly, we engage with students within the town. So we've engaged with Federation Uni Arts Academy and a couple of high schools. So we're allowing young people to engage in the process and education of why we're telling these stories. So so there's the visual outcome, which is the posters in the street. So that allows the locals and the tourists to see what we're talking about. But also there's a beautiful beginning to the to the paste up which is an education program uh, lecture series and then a handful of the students will be invited to actually actively paste them up and we as a town get to choose the theme that we want which is interesting as well one of the other aspects of the program for the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, which is also interactive, is the uh, the portfolio reviews that the festival provides. So it's not just an opportunity for people to look at photographic work in a range of uh, contemporary practices and styles from both local, uh, national and internationally respected photographers, but the opportunity for... Uh, emerging artists, photographers, uh, locals to have their work reviewed and critiqued. That's right. It's quite a tradition in photographic festivals worldwide to have what's called a photo uh, portfolio review. I've done a few around the world now where I've been a reviewer and it's really interesting to see um, 
and discuss people's work on a one-on-one intimate 15-minute uh, interview. And this year, what's really different for Ballarat is that we've got two very significant uh, curators. Karen McQuaid, who's the senior photographic curator for the Photographers' Gallery in London, and Bonnie Rubenstein, who's the creative director for Contact in Toronto in Canada. They're coming out to do follow reviews. And what's really interesting for them is that they're going to look at not just emerging photographers, but hopefully some significant photographic artists will come along to those reviews so that they can show their work. So there's a little bit of, with the folio reviews, there is a little bit of the learning and the sharing, but there's also an opportunity for the artists to actually put their work in front of significant curators who can perhaps change their career paths. Which, in an age in which photography has become almost trivialised in a way, because anybody can now take a photo in an instant with a phone and upload it and have it seen by hundreds or thousands of friends on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. It, it reinforces that the art of photography is, is, a, is still a specialised one, one that requires training and development. To, and anybody can have a good eye, but to hone that eye and to learn the skills around framing and presentation and representation are still valuable and photography is still an art, even though, as I said, kind of millions of photos are taken by uh, billions of people every day. Mm, I think what's really interesting in photographic practice worldwide now is that the distinction between being a photographer and being an artist is shrinking. So many artists who might be painters or sculptors will actually use the photographic medium in some way, whether it be video art or collage. So I think now is a really exciting time for me to take over this um, festival, this Biennale, because I can include quite a significant number of international artists who perhaps in the past would not have uh, fitted into a photography festival because they are not traditional photographers. They are artists who use that practice and I suppose that's where I'm pushing the Biennale far more into that realm. One of the works as part of the core program that you yourself have curated, uh, referencing uh, contemporary photography, is uh, the exhibition Self slash Selfie. <laughs> Selfies are, are now ubiquitous. Why celebrate them in, uh, in uh, the, the Biennale? I think it's really important to examine why and uh, how selfies are, are, are working within our society. And I think that... Um, you know, some people are saying that's a narcissistic uh, obsession with young people. There's a real kind of young people divide there with selfies. But I think that uh, really what I'm trying to do with this exhibition uh, is to discuss this cultural phenomenon and 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 have a dialogue about why people are doing it, what the importance of it is. I mean, at the moment, there's a thousand selfies being uploaded every day, every 10 seconds on Instagram. Good God. (laughs) So it's not really an answer, self-selfie, it's more of a question. But that exhibition will also focus on significant photographers who have historically taken photos of themselves as well. And we've also got a cute little vintage photo booth in the exhibition so people can interact with the selfie booth and put their own selfies into the show. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The track that we heard was a cat called Dionysus. Uh, the last t- one of the last times I played that album on this show, I was joined in the studio by Jonathan Holloway, the Artistic Director of Melbourne Festival, who uh, coincidentally joins us again in the studio now. Jonathan, the last time I played a, a track from this album, I had no idea that you had programmed the magnetic fields in your festival. Were you slightly startled that, uh, I, that I played that? Well, I was, I was kind of grinning like a cat. That was why I was, I was sat here going, what's the, chance of, what's the chance of that? Except it's such a sensational piece of work. But no, yes, I was uh, very pleased about that. You've uh, you co-commissioned uh, the fifty song memoir as as a stage production. I understand that's right. So we um, we uh, I mean I, I I love Stephen's work, but also it's it's a great moment and it absolutely fitted in with everything we're wanting to talk about in the festival this year, which is about that idea of stepping back and seeing a bigger picture, whether that be fifty years of a sensational musician's life or two hundred and forty years of popular music or the entire. Uh, earth from the primordial swamp to uh, to whatever we're in now. 
another primordial swamp. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but it's, it's so, someone will drain it. We're going to be fine. <laughs> Why do we need mm. to step back and look at that bigger picture? Because I think artists always have. It's one thing that the arts can do is to really get a sense of... Um, of where we are and where we're coming from, where we're going to, it's a, uh, uh, it's it's that idea of seeing the unseen or the the undiscovered or, or discussing a subject matter that, uh, I mean, from Greek tragedies onwards, it's discussing what if this happened and it's a safe space to do it. Secondly, I think the definition of, of I mean, every day is defined now by the actions of one or two people around the world. Sometimes it's the same person, sometimes it's different, but the narrative seems to twist and turn uh, of our particular um, extended series of humanity around um, individual unthought through actions often or, or, or badly thought through actions and yet we have been incredible at building yeah building pyramids or, or building cities so you look at melbourne and the achievement of building a city that has the hoddle grid with uh, tram tracks with uh, with a railway system with with walking uh, with laneways and, and, and walkways just the nature of melbourne it came out of having vision of how a city can be and and we now enjoy the fact that we we live in a city that took the great ideas and, and ditched many of the bad ideas. And I don't think that's where we are as, as a group of people in 2017 at the moment. And I don't look forward to reading the news. I don't say, let's see what we've invented or cured or created. I, I think, what has someone done? So I wanted the festival to take a step back and, and see a bigger picture and let us all remember what is possible when um, often a small, sometimes a large group of people do something quite incredible. So one of the ways that we're looking at the big picture at this year's Melbourne Festival is with the uh, performance A 24-Decade History of Popular Music, which is covering 240 years of music originally staged over 24 hours here in Melbourne. It's being broken up into slightly more manageable chunks. Presented by the US performance artist Taylor Mack, who, uh, whose gender pronoun, if I'm correct, is Judy. That's correct. Yes. Although uh, often, uh, I mean, it's quite difficult, but often uh, just try and avoid gender pronouns. But actually, Taylor is, understands that's complex and, 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 and isn't militant about it. It's just, it's a preference. Yeah. So what was it about Judy's work that you wanted to present in the festival? So I first saw Taylor perform uh, nearly 10 years ago in edinburgh and was just completely blown away by the honesty the passion by the fact that you were laughing harder than you'd ever laughed before and then uh it was breaking your hearts by by the actual beauty of the artistry and the voice and but also by uh, a humanity that that seemed to speak to every single person in the room wherever they came from absolute inclusion so six years ago taylor started talking or seven years now started talking about this idea of 24 one-hour pieces of work which came together to tell a story from 1776 to now of popular music. And I said, absolutely, and I'm in, and whatever I can ever do to help, and uh, when, it, when it's there, count, count me in and we'll, we'll, we'll be a co-commissioner. So um, this work, I've, I've actually only seen... I think I've, seen, I've seen nine hours of it in total, but I've seen two three-hour blocks uh, in different forms and then I saw one of the three hour blocks just before the festival last year in its full beautiful St Anne's Warehouse dozens and dozens of performers on stage um, uh, form uh, and and it is just as beautiful and fabulous as anything I've ever seen and I think it says something about who we are where we're coming from it's absolutely about inclusion at every single level it's a work about inclusion uh, at which tickets are priced at $699, which will exclude the majority of people who'd actually like to see it. It's a work about inclusion that starts at $39 uh, with cheaper tickets uh, discounted for people who are under 30 or in the industry. Um, for the for Taylor's work, which you can see a one-and-a-half-hour performance, uh, 4,000 people can see Taylor and uh, and the band perform sections of this, so uh, a sort of whistle-stop tour for about 40 bucks, which I think is uh, fairly good for a Hamer Hall or Forum show. Um, Yes, if you then want to see the full 24-hour marathon, of which there are 850 seats, uh, the very top ticket price is $699. Um, it is 150 performers and 50 crew members working for two weeks just on this uh, one piece of work, and nobody is doing it for nothing. We pay absolutely everybody involved, and 
Actually, the maths are really interesting. Once you start saying 200 people, 33 of them flying from New York, doing something which will tell a story that's incredible, you get to the point where uh, actually the level of subsidy that goes on top of that for me is absolutely worth it. The level of investment is worth it. So when you break it down to $30 an hour for theatre, I, I wonder how much... I mean, yeah, you, you've seen 100 shows this year. So when it comes to the time elements, uh, you, you know that people... Uh, who are crazy about these things will invest 100 hours um, into theatre over a short period of time. And, and also, when you just work out the, 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 the economics of it, there's, uh, there, there was no other way to do it except that top ticket price. But for me, the 100-and-something people who are uh, from the community, who are performing, who are involved, who are part of that whole thing, that's where the inclusion is, as well as for the audience. Uh- as well as the 24 history of popular 24 decade history of popular music at the festival as Jonathan has mentioned Taylor Mac is also doing two other works the inauguration and the rap so yeah so opportunities to to see elements of the work it is sure to be extraordinary something else that i already know is extraordinary that you have programmed is Michelle Heaven's work in plan yeah. which i was lucky enough to catch at the Castle Main State Festival a couple of years ago i wrote a review about it saying i can tell you nothing about this show but do not not miss it if it is ever staged again. Were you one of the people who saw it in, no. in Castle Main? So you're That's going why I on... programmed it. Yeah. I programmed the damn things I can't say. They won't show me a video. They won't tell me anything about it. Every time, I mean, I can, uh, I've got no option but to put this work on. It's, it's the ultimate hostage situation for a festival director. I, I want to see it because the five people I know who did see it, of, of which you, you're one, um, uh, have told me it was transformational and, and wonderful. Plus, it is a perfect festival piece. It's for a smaller audience. It does something that none of us can talk about, which is amazing. And it, it it's the perfect place, yes, to put work like that. Yeah. You've had previous work in the festival, which we essentially couldn't talk about. Um, a work by the, the Gorilla Museum, Funeral, which, again, I was lucky enough to, to be involved with in its very first iteration several years ago at Melbourne Fringe. You've invited uh, the Boon Companions back to create a new work this year, which is on a somewhat larger scale. It is, uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the audience size. So 140 people see it now instead of however many saw it before, which we're not meant to talk about. Um, but I just loved the way that they approach theatre and storytelling and audiences. This was a work that we're, uh, that we're working with Theatre Works on and, and one of the very first things that John Sheedy said to me when he was appointed at Theatre Works was, shall we do this? And, and, and I, I immediately said yes because I think the way that they approach... Uh, again, humanity, the telling stories of real people. It's, it, there's an inclusivity about it that is fabulous. And, um, and there's also there's a quirkiness, but I, I, want them to, I want them to travel the world with this work. I, I, want, the rest of the, I want them to become one of those companies that, that Melbourne is known for. Adelaide is known uh, for the company Gravity and Other Myths, who are one of the world-class circus acts around. I've seen their last two shows, A Simple Space and the, the show before that, which was just called Gravity and Other Myths, uh, which was on at Melbourne Fringe many years ago now. The new work Backbone is something that was, what, co-commissioned by the uh, Australian Festivals Alliance? I That's can't right. Remember. So, uh, major, major Festivals Initiative, which is the, uh, the seven uh, international festivals in the seven uh, capital cities, or seven of the eight capital cities. And it is, it's a real coming-of-age work. It's, it's that moment when a company who have incredible talent, great ambition, skill set uh, to just, uh, just blow you away, but also a vision and idea, um, have the idea that is significant of scale. And uh, so the, the, the seven festivals got together. We, we uh, using government money, uh, commissioned the work. Uh, this will be the second, I think, second or third outing in Australia. But it's it's it is beautiful. It, it really is seeing artists again. It's seeing what happens when you when you allow artists to really fly. When you when you invest in them. When you give them space and time. And uh, th- there's something actually within the whole program about supporting ambition and that ambition can come from anywhere ambition doesn't need to come from a german composer uh, uh quite a long time ago it, it can come from uh, the circus community it can come from the lgbtiq plus community it can come from the music community or the theater community and and recognizing that when it happens and supporting it uh with that same level of absolute passion i think is is the point of a festival now there's a 
an enormous variety of work in the program for Melbourne Festival this year. It's a very, very strong program, and I'm bloody delighted to kind of to know that I will have the opportunity to see at least some of it. Uh, how do you go about shaping a festival? Because I'm sure every year there are shows you pursue that fall over at the last minute, and you have to find something else to fill the gap or just go, right, we'll have them next year instead, and you just don't tell the media that there's a gaping hole that you're still grieving over. Um, when you put a program like this together, what are you looking to do with it? Are you looking to impress? Are you looking to provide people with an experience they will talk about in 20 years' time? Or are you consciously thinking of yourself and your career and programming works that you know when you apply for your next festival director's job in three or four years' time that people go, oh, Holloway, he's the person who achieved the Giants in Perth and Taylor Mac in Melbourne. Yeah, let's get him. Oh, there are, there are way easier ways of, of achieving your next job than doing any of those things. So it's not that. It's, if, I'm, if it's that, I'm a bad investor. I mean, really, in terms of time, energy, commitment and risk. Uh, I mean, actually, uh, virtually every, every unemployed festival director in the world um, got one of those wrong. So uh, no, that's a, it's a te- that that's not a, not a very good way to have a uh, even if this is a career a career. But no, I, I start with wanting to do things that are amazing, and and my main driver is never be disappointing. And I know a lot of the audience, and I I talk to people. I, I I'm in foyers. I'm, I I meet people. I, I'm I, I like. I like the people who come and see the work as much as I like the people who make the work. I'm not... I, I'm actually... I don't believe I'm here for the artists. I do believe that I'm here primarily for the audiences because that's the, the festival faces in two directions. And so I start with what will, what will excite people like you, what will excite people like the people who are listening, what will excite and surprise people. I then do want occasional works which people will say... We have just got to be in Melbourne at that time. I also like it when we get to be heroes, as people who see a lot of art or people who believe in the arts. I like it when we get to say, we were there when this thing happened. That shouldn't, be, that shouldn't only be people who went to the Grand Prix or to Wimbledon or to the AFL Grand Final. Uh, water coolers should be alive with conversations about art. And then I want... I think it has to be transformational and make a difference. It has to do something for society. Um, and when you see something like Tree of Codes or when you see something like, uh, I mean, turning to virtually every page, Tandarum, for example, uh, they're, 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 this is a very, very, very rare programme for me. There is not a single piece of work in here to fill, not one. There is no last-minute piece of work that I went, we're lacking a page, let's do it. There's never been a festival that didn't have things that didn't quite get there. And with this one, we started with the really big stuff because otherwise we there's nowhere on earth we would have got to um, things like Tandarum and Taylor Mac and Tree of Codes and Yang Li Ping unless we start... And Banks of Coal, uh, Requiem for Cambodia. Unless we start with that, there's no way they would make the cut because people would say, but what about these seven other shows? And the truth is... You want things that people will remember forever, but nobody. Uh, I don't think anybody can remember who was the festival director who put on the Mahabharata, or and I doubt. I mean, I, I think two years time, nobody will remember who it was who put on things anywhere really, and that's fine. It's that's not the job. One of the things that I look for in a festival program is a work that I know nothing about, which will give me a transformative experience, uh, a deeply emotional and moving experience. And looking through this program, for example, I like choral music, but I rarely go out and experience it. But looking at something like Path of Miracles, which is, I think, what a, a response to the, the, the London bombings from a, f- a few years ago, I already look at that and I think, I want to see this. This is going to pull me into an area of, of the arts that, that I enjoy, but I, I rarely see. And also... I- I agree, and, and I think that's a great response, and that's that's the response we'd hope for. But I, I also say, go and see it in Stonington if you can, because that first performance um, in a sacred space, it was written by Joby Tolbert, who was uh, one of the founding members of Divine Comedy, along with Neil Hannon, and uh, has gone on to have his own prom. He's gone on to write the music for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the the movie, uh, quite a lot of movies actually, and he's sort of he, he trained as a classical musician and has also been a pop star, so he knows real people. And he knows orchestration. The orchestration of Path of Miracles and the, and the, um, the vocal journey, uh, it's about the journey to Santiago de Compostela in, in Spain, the, the pilgrimage. Um, and they, the, the, the choir, who've never been to Australia, it's their 25th year, um, 
move around the audience. So actually, it's absolutely a piece of theatre. I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward, just to wrap up, there's so much more we could talk about. But last year I had my hair cut by children, uh, courtesy of the Canadian company Mammalian Diving Reflex. This year I've just turned 50 and I'm thinking, hmm, age. I'm getting used to and comfortable with my body and the idea of age and getting older. So I'm really intrigued by the, the production All the Sex I've Ever Had, in which seniors talk about sex. And, and it's led by the same company who, who led Haircuts by Children in a very different style, clearly. And yes, it's, so it's, it's over 65s and, and often way over 65s on stage uh, telling the story of their lives through the lens of their sexual lives. Because every generation thinks they invented sex and, uh, and it's sort of almost a taboo for older people to talk about it. So again, to have a history of Melbourne, to see where we've come from, what were our social... What was our social background? What were all the moments that happened in the past 70 years that changed society? Well, there's no better way of talking about that than to describe all the sex you've ever had. Although there may be, I mean, I don't know, there may be long airs. There may be some decades that aren't as exciting as others. But uh, it's still, I think, that idea of saying uh, a festival that can... The festival can only be made with Melbourne. It's not a, It's not dropped in. The whole... Whether it's Taylor Mac or, or Guerrilla Museum or, or all the sex I've ever had or any of those works, uh, they they only completed if the city joins actively and gets involved. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, a new play, Merciless Gods, based on the book of the same name, uh, a short story collection by Triple R's own Christos Chalkas, joined in the studio by Stephen Nicolazzo and Dan Giovanoni. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you. Hello. So, Stephen, this is the latest work for uh, the company that you're involved with, kind of like a, a collective, mm-hmm. Little Ones Theatre, who in the past have had a reputation for, for being for doing very camp, very colourful work. There's yes. an enormous amount of restraint in this work. It feels a very mature work for the company, although nonetheless I was sitting there going, oh, I can see these flourishes. <laughs> so the camp is still there, but it's... Um, do you feel you've consciously toned down, pulled back for this work? Um, I think that it sort of began earlier this year with The Happy Prince, our Oscar Wilde adaptation, where we sort of wanted to start looking at more... Um, restrained and elegant representations of camp um, and also theatricality. So I think it's my, uh, it's an extension, I guess, of that process. Um, but, yeah, I think it was conscious for me because I wanted to explore other things and not just do, you know, camp spectacle all the time and, and I don't know, just explore something else. Yeah. yeah. Dan, is this the first time you've worked with the company? I wrote a play many years ago that um, Stephen directed <laughs> maybe oh, well, eight, eight years ago. So actually, we've known each other for about 12 years. Yeah. So we started Little Ones Theatre together, actually, okay. at university, at Melbourne University. Um, and, you know, over we, the we, years... We produced the, a, couple of, a couple of plays together yes. then. Yes. So it's a return. Okay. <laughs> Which is appropriate given uh, the, the subject of one of the stories that, that's been adapted. I didn't know you were one of the, the founders of Little Ones because I'm more aware of you as a playwright with your own kind of career. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, the, the company has sort of... It started as a university collective and it has evolved into something quite distinct and, and separate from my um, from me and from my practice. Yeah, it's very much Stephen and... Katie Svakitis and Eugene Tay, they're kind of the, they are the core, yeah, the core little ones. Um, but this was a really, I mean, having personal relationships with those three, with those three artists um, and having worked with Stephen before, it really did feel like a great, um, a great place to start, you know, a new, a new adaptation, a new work. Yeah. Mm. Now, Adapting uh, short stories by Christos Cholkis, who is uh, probably, well, certainly my favourite Australian novelist uh, and someone I've known for years. And I know him as he's written novels, short stories, screenplays. He's written for the theatre uh, in the mm. past. But is this the first time that his work has been adapted for the stage? This is certainly the first time this collection of stories has been adapted for the stage. Mm. And I, I think it is the first adaptation of his work for... For the stage, yeah, yeah. I, I think it is. And I think that's been really exciting for him um, to come in and watch that process over the last three years too because um, I, I don't think he had ever imagined that so many vignettes would actually work as a, as a theatre piece. And so, um, 
Yeah, I think he's really excited by the fact that it's the first stage adaptation too. So how did the the process of adaptation come about? Did you approach Christos and then think now he's given our, us our blessing, I need to find a writer and bring Dan on board? Yeah, so this, the way that it kind of went was I was listening to, I think I was listening to Triple R and he was talking, to, Christos was doing an interview about the book um, and he was talking about Jean Genet and this particular story called Petals which is in the production um, and my partner turned to me and said, you should really work with him. And so at first I was like, that's not not ever possible. And then I got in touch with him and we had a drink and here we are. So, yeah, and then I knew that Dan had to be the person to write it um, because like myself and like Christos, Dan is, uh, you know, has had the experiences of a lot of the stories and is someone that has the sensitivity and the nuance that I don't necessarily have as an artist to bring that work together. What kind of experiences made you the right writer for this? I suppose um, I suppose the things that we have in common, we are young, uh, queer children of migrants and I think that um, positions us... Like I've never, I've never, you know, directly experienced the racism that my grandparents did, and you know, to a lesser extent, my parents. But I, I think being the child of migrants does place you outside, um, at least sort of subconsciously, a society a little bit. I think that I look at Australia as, um, as a subject in a different way to perhaps someone who... Through a different lens from different someone lens. like myself, for example. Yeah, yeah perhaps. It's kind of like as, as white bread as they come. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and, I, and then being queer on top of that is kind of connect, connects it. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that struck me watching the, the preview of Merciless Gods last night, which I think was the second preview, mm-hmm. uh, was the challenge that you must have faced as a writer to find your own theatrical voice for the work, but also then ensure that Christos's voice was maintained. So mm. it's almost as if you've had to become a puppet for his words to mm. flow through. Uh, talk to us about about that struggle, about making these stories work theatrically while not losing the essence of Christos's voice. Mm. Look, they're short stories, um, and so short stories, I think, are, and, and in this collection especially, a lot of them are quite um, interior you know, they are people um, thinking things. And on stage, generally speaking, you have to have people saying things um, and doing things. So there was a process of, um, I suppose, looking at looking at this, you know, the base story of each of each um, chapter and working out which bits of those stories we needed to tell. So there was a lot of kind of cutting and conflating of characters. Um, that's sort of the technical part of it, I suppose. In terms of the, I don't know, ensuring that his voice is kind of kept in there. I, I just kept returning to the source text. Like, you know, I, at the beginning I would, I, I read the stories, I wrote my my own versions and we worked on those for a little while and then they would kind of get lost and or I'd lose my way with them rather and I would return to Christos's text and that was always kind of the, the, guy, the guide um, and... You know, I'd 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 find find new things in those stories, which either meant I didn't read them properly the first time, or that they just are really well written stories um, that kind of keep giving. Um, yeah, they were they they were really the they were my guide. Those stories. And in terms of selecting which stories to adapt, mm. was, talk to us about that process. Were there some, for example, Stephen, where you, you were reading the book and you just went, "We just can't make that work." on the stage. Yeah, there was one story in particular that I actually really, for a little while, wanted to present, which is called Genetic Material. Um, But it got to a point where I was like, you cannot put this particular moment on stage without it being a total provocation that might just rub people the wrong way. So there were a lot of questions when we were looking at the stories as to which were too far and like unstageable and which ones we could actually kind of present without any kind of... Because there's so many sort of horrific moments in the stories. Um, we wanted to present them in an, a sophisticated way and not do things that were sort of... Con- that might be perceived as shock tactics. I think also yeah. there was something about kind of balancing flavours too, yeah. you know. Like I think the, the, the eight stories that we've chosen to adapt um, are... 
are quite are quite different, mm. and they kind of look at different parts of society and different. Um, they're told from the perspective of different characters. We didn't want to hear from the same people. Mm. I, it was interesting, for example, going into it, wondering how you had approached it, whether you would be interweaving stories, for example, or whether you would be keeping them as discrete vignettes. It was also fascinating knowing... Because, interestingly, I I didn't buy Merciless Gods. It's the only book of Christos's I didn't buy when it came out because I'd already read some of the short stories in earlier collections. Mm. So Saturn's Return, for example, which then Christos and Spiro Economopoulos later ad- adapted into a short film, mm. was one of the very first stories of Christos's that I'd read. So it was I was going, oh, look, I own that one and that one and that one. That one. I can't justify buying the collection. Now I want to go out and buy it and read them because there are obviously new works. Um, but it was fascinating for me to watch the audience response to some of the works too uh, because... Um, uh, the seating arrangement allows you to look kind of across the stage at, at, at points. Uh, and I could hear people behind me gasping, uh, like literally gasping in shock at one or two moments. Mm. And then there were the moments when I utterly was taken out of myself and forgot that I was at the theatre and watching people and watching work and caught up in the emotion of the stories that I was watching. Because there are, yes, Christos's writing is sometimes deliberately ugly mm. and provocative, but there is moments of such kind of raw pain and beauty. It's so tender mm. that there is such tenderness in it. And that's people, what we really wanted to bring to the stage. Like mm. that is the heart of it for us. Yeah. yeah, the brutality of his work gets discussed a lot, but I think it's always, it's never just brutal, it's tempered with sort of a beautiful tenderness and humanity. And there's a reason for the brutality as Absolutely, well. yeah. 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 So without wanting to give too much away about the work, there's a, a couple of sequences that resonated with me beautifully. There's one with uh, uh, a grieving mother, for, mm. for example. Uh, there's uh, another more monstrous mother, which was fascinating <laughs> to see, and a, a wonderful performance there. Um, uh, Saturn's Return is, is adapted, so people who already know that mm. will see that. And there's, uh, particularly in the second half, the, 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 the two stories which kind of bookend uh, the, the second half of the show after the interval. There's um, a tenderness and a, and a, and a pain mm. uh, that was beautifully articulated in both of those stories. So... Working with the actors to to find the right dramatic note. Tell us about that. Um, it was a we had a really we were very lucky. We had a six week process to kind of really mine it. Um, but I think in this case, in the case of this production, and particularly scenes like that, we were working with actors who have physical control and like really technical brilliance, but also absolute access to raw nerves and their their inter, like internal kind of heart. So I think using those, particularly with those two scenes, Pawn 2 and Pawn 3, um, those, those actors that are driving those works are all heart, but they're also really controlled. So that's where the emotion comes from, I think, for me. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.